you're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines. We're joined by Peter O'Rourke from Extinction Rebellion. And on the phone, we have Ruby from Frontline Action on Coal. G'day. How's it going? Good, good. Are you there, Ruby? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. To start off with... Um, What's going on? Um, what, what's what's global warming? We'll establish the problem, I think, first, uh, as briefly as we can, and then we can talk about what we might be doing about it. Um, so would anyone like to outline global warming and the theory of that just briefly? Sure, I'll be happy to jump in here. Um, I suppose on, on the most basic level, um, it's we from industrialisation, we keep releasing more carbon and other gases into the atmosphere. And what happens is the light filters through that, but then it gets trapped. It can't escape, and it increases the temperature of um, the whole planet. Um, it's a process that is um, has been speeding up since uh, humans, you know, have been um, uh, created the combustion engine, basically. And yeah, the Earth gets hotter and hotter, and that affects everything um, from um, how the certain ecosystems work to how the forests work, uh, the temperature of the oceans. And um, it's important because uh, humans and all the other animals and everything, we survive in a very narrow band of what is comfortable, and um, that is changing from human activity. So it's, it's, it's the heat getting trapped in. What, what, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, you hear all these people saying, you know, well, we'll be able to grow crops a bit further north and, you know, go sunbaking in the Arctic and things like that. Sure, but it also means uh, widespread drought in lots of areas, and it also means that um, the collapse of uh, certain, uh, you know, um, look at um, something like the um, Great Barrier Reef. Uh, as uh, the Earth heats up and it gets hotter, and the acidification of the ocean is happening as well, and that is from the temperature. Um, you've got all these wider systems that rely on what comes from these reefs, so then that affects global fish stocks. Um, you look at uh, things um, such as the abilities of, uh, to grow crops in certain areas uh, where there's huge populations um, in, you know, um, right across Asia and all that kind of thing. You know, if that collapses, what, how are you going to feed all those people? So that's um, kind of the, the issue. I mean, it's not just a thing of going, oh, this is, um, it, um, it's a bit more balmy. It increases that. Plus, you've um, got the effects on things like storms, bushfires. Um, you know, at the moment, there's places up in the Arctic, in the tundra, which are on fire. You know, that's that's not something you usually see, and it's and you can apparently see that from space from the um, satellite images I was reading the other day. So yeah, yeah, times they are a change, and eh? Um, so who's actually who's come out with this theory, and and what are they saying about it? Are they are they a you know reputable sort of mob? You, uh, you could go <laughs> with the really conservative side of it, and the IPCC. Who are they? So that's the uh, inter, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's made up of scientists and academics, institutions from all around the world, um, and they put in a lot of research. Um, so they've been, I mean, basically the uh, science around this has been, been there sort of since the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Um, it was really sort of established in a consensus sort of way in the 80s and 90s, and but the effects are coming now. Um, so the people who have been studying this, like they've been looking at so much data and um, because you've got so many institutions who are all cross-referencing it, it's it's not just like a couple of um, people sort of working um, in a box. It's a really multidisciplinary um, space. And so you can, um, it's, you know, pretty much undoubtable proof in, in the way that these things are happening. 
Mm-hmm. So who is it that's not really believing this stuff? I mean, isn't that like an outright rejection of science itself? Yeah, well, I suppose that's a hard thing. I guess um, the way I kind of see it is uh, often we're, our humans are very experiential people. So we like to experience something and then we'll go, okay, yep, that's what I believe. So for the average person who's living in the city or the suburbs, um, they're not going to really feel the the effects of this stuff too much. Like life hasn't changed, you know, too much. They're not seeing, you know, food shortages in the shops or anything here in Australia, for an, um, example. But last summer, we um, definitely had a record heat wave and um, something, uh, heat waves are actually one of the most deadly natural disasters. Um, it's uh, particularly um, bad for um, older people and, and, and children, but it's not as, uh, you know, not as visual as a bushfire or something like that. But I think for a lot of people, you've kind of got different stages. So you've got people who are outright denial, think it's a conspiracy. You know, those people have a certain worldview, which is, you know, partly funded by the lobbying of uh, fossil fuel companies and things who are, who are quite happy to sweep um, climate change under the carpet. Um, and then you've got other people who, you know, acknowledge that it's happening but don't, haven't really engaged with it. So they haven't sort of thought about, okay, this is how it's going to affect my life, my children's life, uh, people overseas, you know. I mean, you've got people in India, for example, um, the city of Chennai nearly ran out of water and you've got people who are fighting over water trucks and things like that and that's becoming their day-to-day life. You've got, you know, um, slums where it's 50 degrees in the shade. Like, that's, that's really hard to live in. So those people going, yeah, okay, something's happening. But here in Australia, because of our wealth, we're, we're kind of shielded from that. And I think a lot of people, you know, you're going about your busy life, you're, you know, getting the kids to school, going shopping, that kind of thing. So you, you don't really have time to engage with that. But it's so overpowering if you actually sit down and think about it, um, just the effects uh, that it's, it's happening on our system right now. Mm, yeah, I heard a, uh, heard a stat that if, if you get... Um if you get 100% humidity and above your core body temperature, you're basically toast. You're going to overheat and die um, unless you've got some sort of technological way of cooling yourself down. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so that's pretty frightening for a lot of the world, isn't it? I think so, especially in those tropical kind of areas. And, you know, if you're someone who, who's, you know, uh, doesn't have access to air conditioning and all that kind of stuff, then, you know, not good. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. All right. Well, maybe we'll look at some of the scenarios. Have you got your head around the, uh, the the heating scenarios, like the one degree scenario and that sort of thing? Yeah. So it's kind of it. Uh, it's both um, incremental but exponential. So as things get hotter, it does get worse and worse. Um, I suppose some of so in the way you can kind of look at it. Uh, there's uh, certain certain crops that will that need a certain amount of um, uh, that need the right sort of temperatures to be able to grow in certain areas. Um, the effects that uh, different amounts of heat can have on drought and things, but also flooding rains, like we've just seen in America um, across the Midwest, they've had uh, floods in heaps of areas, and they haven't been able to grow, you know, soybean crops, corn, that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's something that is quite immediate with with um, just a few, you know, um, half a degree, one degree. And as it goes up, these effects get worse and worse. So I the, suppose what, yeah. they, what they learned in New Orleans too was that the flood isn't just a flood anymore. It's actually a, a toxic inundation because we've polluted so much that it all gets swept down into these areas. Yeah, And that totally. can do away with the viability of your farmland as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. And, it's, and it's, you know, like once, once you have water going um, through a, 
um, area, which is, you know, um, has lots of uh, industrial sort of areas, that kind of thing, you know, all that waste and um, all those um, chemicals going in the water as well, and that can poison stuff. And of course, you've got the effects on um, the ice caps and uh, land ice up in Greenland and Antarctica and things like that. So as things get hotter, uh, that ice starts to melt, that water's got to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Where does it go? Back into the ocean, and um, and then we start to see sea level rise. I, um, it is something that is measurable. Uh, for example, in Miami, they've been building um, a whole bunch of extra levees. They've been raising the roads, which are just near near the coast, because uh, when you do get um, those um, you know coastal sort of storm surges come in, that's getting much worse. So those areas, basically, it's going to be a, a retreat from the coast. And as you sort of, you know, um, get more and more inundated with water, you know, the um, value of those houses changes, they start to decay, people start abandoning them. So the uh, coastal cities around the world, you know, are definitely in some strife. Yes, and I guess that's where most of the cities are too, isn't it? It is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, what about, say, 1.5 degrees so that's that's the um, level that um, the IPCC has put as you know that's the uh, safe level I suppose if you will I mean it still causes lots of problems um, at the moment we're on track to about three point five or four four degrees um, in our current levels of um, emissions um, and that's also you know in terms of you know cutting down um, like rainforests and land clearing and that that doesn't help either so. Um, in that kind of scenario, you're, scenario, you're still going to see uh, issues with, um, you know, crops in certain areas, widespread drought, um, less water, and other places getting too much water. Um, and then as that goes up and up, um, it starts to change how all the systems work. So where you've got um, certain currents and uh, areas which have uh, different temperatures, that starts to kind of shift. So suddenly you've got areas which were quite cool becoming quite warm areas which were quite warm becoming cooler maybe and it just kind of throws a whole system out of whack and creates this feedback loop um, and that has an effect on biodiversity it has, um, has an effect on when the monsoons and those kind of things come and I suppose the something that uh, people don't seem to mention nearly as much but I think is really important is that actually the effects on uh, national security and things like that so if you've suddenly got um, you know Millions of people on the move uh, from places um, which will be largely affected, you know, right across Asia, parts of Africa and the Middle East and things like that. And they're, um, you know, having to find somewhere to, to go. That can cause conflict. Uh, when you've got nations who are fighting over water and resources, that can be an issue too. So, for example, you know, here in, in Australia, obviously, we've got um, the fight between the states over the Murray-Darling Basin. Imagine if that was separate countries um, fighting over that water resource. And that's what we're seeing in places like India and Pakistan, where they um, and uh, China, where there's countries who are actually using the flow of water um, to sort of, you know, uh, I suppose, you know, looking at the different advantages and disadvantages they, they can have in, you know, maintaining those resources. So you, you've um, suddenly got communities and nations fighting over resources, and that causes, you know, uh, problems for all sorts of global uh, conflict, which affects everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um... I guess another thing to mention is what what happens to a government when the population runs out of food? Well, that's it, you know. I mean, we've only, somewhere like Australia, um, I was reading somewhere, we've only got about three weeks of fuel supplies. And, you know, we're 
where are you going to be able to transport the food, you know, from, from the farmlands to be processed in the cities and then to be taken to all the towns and everything. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't take long to cripple a um, population. And if you see the kind of, um, you know, uh, droughts and issues with that kind of stuff, it could happen re really, really quickly. So, yeah, who knows? <laughs> I mean, places like Syria, for example, um, you can actually trace back. They were experiencing a lot of drought before you had um, the conflict and the civil war there. So you had people who were in the cities um, who were farmers and in villages. Suddenly they couldn't grow food, moved to the cities looking for work. Uh, you've got a massive amount of population with not enough jobs going on there. And you've got political unrest in the government. You know, go, um, that goes down to certain rebel groups and extremism and all the rest of it. And it all, it's all this flow and effect. But you can actually see rises where there has been civil unrest in the Middle East often have been uh, connected to climate earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's all connected, isn't it? Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> all right, did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Ruby? Um, I guess just that uh, when we speak about global warming and climate change, I think often we speak about it purely in a scientific kind of manner and framing it often engages, it's often the way that we frame it completely disengages people um from, you know, re realising the reality and the severity um, of the climate crisis and the ways that it can affect us. So I like to think of the climate crisis as a health issue, as an economic issue, as a political issue, as a social justice issue. You know, it's, it's something that severely threatens all life on Earth. Yeah, and that includes us, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. We're a part of this. You know, we're a part of, a part of the environment, um, and we're completely dependent on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this whole extinction bit of extinction rebellion and and, and what we're all we're all trying to fight against here. How real is this extinction threat? Like, is there a percentage they've got on it? Even the IPC, or really much the conservative end of it all? Yeah, the IPCC is the uh, conservative end. Um, a lot of their reports and stuff to be able to limit uh, the amount of warming is still based on technologies that don't exist yet. Um, I think we are, the thing is we're seeing extinction every day. So we're not just talking about human extinction. We're talking about the extinction of all kinds of creatures and biodiversity loss is huge around the world. Uh, not just from um, the climate crisis, but also the, the ecological crisis of us, you know, completely uh, ruining the um, soil with industrial farming um, not letting soil regenerate, you know, um, having monoculture crops, all that um, has, an, has an effect on uh, the amount of wildlife we see. And then, you know, you've got food stocks based on that. And for, you know, humans, uh, we are part of that system. So extinction of humans, you know, could be a very real thing. Um, I think the extinction re rebellion refers to the extinction of all life. And, um, you know, like at the... I think uh, at the time of the dinosaurs when they had, you know, the um, asteroid and all that kind of stuff, that did cause climate change. I think it was like 97% of life on Earth was wiped out, which is huge, you know. So you think about 97% of life on Earth now, you know. So I suppose it's a rebellion against extinction. Oh, well, that sounds like a fair call to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Ruby, can you explain what's going on up where you are there? Sure. So... I'm here on the front lines with Frontline Action on Coal. Um, and basically, uh, two days ago, we had two brave young people who went out 
to the Adani Carmichael mine site and suspend themselves from nine metre um, high poles. And they actually were able to immobilise 17 different machines um, and completely stop tree clearing for the entire day. Um, and at the same time as, um, as that was happening, we released a red alert. And basically what the red alert means is that the time to start making your way to the front line is now. So if there was ever a time to come and stand on the front lines and to stop a Danny's mine, that time is now because 40 hectares of land has already been cleared. Um, there's another 450 hectares that have better planned, um, and Adani has begun clearing the land. So um, the construction has started. The destruction has also started. Um, native habitat is being threatened, um, and basically we've got a really small time period to stand up and to stop this mine from happening. Mm. What, what happens if this mine does go ahead? So basically, um, at the moment, there's 65% of Queensland is already in drought and um, Adani's coal mine, if it does go ahead, it's going to pave the way for the digging of eight more coal mines Um, and it also means that uh, billions of litres of water um, are going to be extracted from the Galilee Basin and the Galilee Basin is... Um, a part of the Great Artesian Basin, which is the biggest artesian basin in the world. Um, and so those groundwater, underwater um, aquifers, are they form the last blood of Queensland. And so they're really integral to um, survival in Queensland. And so if this, if this mine goes ahead, um, there's a risk of, well, a huge, basically what's going to happen is um, drought is going to only worsen um, the climate catastrophe is going to continue to escalate in a period of time where we actually need to be doing the opposite. You know, we need to be rapidly decreasing our consumption. We need to be switching to renewables, um, and we need, yeah, we need social resistance and and huge amounts of um, system change. So, um, yeah, the the effects the, the the effects of this mine are absolutely catastrophic, and they're catastrophic not just in terms of Queensland. Um, but nationwide and worldwide, um, Australia's carbon emissions are, if eight, those eight other um, proposed mines are to, to open up, Australia's emissions um, could increase by 130%, which is huge. You know, it's like absolutely devastating. Yeah, right. So um, what's the argument for why this is a good idea? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um the argument for why this is a good idea, I think, has been, it's largely, um, I think, the thing that's been portrayed to most Queenslanders has been jobs and growth, um, which is actually a complete falsity. It's, you know, Adani, I think they, they started with this mine um, saying 10,000 jobs are going to be offered to local Queenslanders, um, and that soon started to deteriorate, deteriorate to, you know, something like 1,500 jobs to now something like 100 jobs, um, and very few of those jobs are going to be given to local Queensland, um, local people in this area. Um, you know, a lot of people from the cities are going to be employed, and there's a lot of automation that's going to happen as well. Um, so there's, yeah, I think there's um, a lot of misconception in that area around jobs and growth in the economy um, when it comes to a dummy. I guess there's probably not too many giant mining machine technicians around in small towns in the 
back of yeah, back of exactly. Queensland. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, at the same time, like I think one of the things as well is that um, if the Australian government truly cared about people in Queensland, um, they'd be taking action on on climate crisis. You know, they'd be starting to upskill people and train people in jobs in renewables. Um, and I think that's the key message: is that people, the people of Queensland, deserve more. They deserve a lot more. Yeah, totally, totally. So you you've put out the call for people to come up there, and what what can people expect when they uh, when they get up there? Yeah, so that's um, a really good question. Basically, um, I think a lot of the time when people think about coming up to the front lines, they think um, that they have to be involved in illegal, nonviolent direct action, which isn't the case. Basically, there's lots of different areas um, and ways to get involved at camp. So Camp Bimby um, currently has lots of different working groups. So there's uh, a community care working group based on regenerative culture. There's a um, kitchen and garden working group. So you can come and help cook and clean and work in the permaculture garden. Um, there's a legal working group. Um, you know, there's, there's all of these different ways that you can get involved that don't necessarily um, mean that you have to stand in, you know, you don't have to necessarily um, participate in any sort of illegal activity, um, which is a really important thing. And at the moment, we need as many people and as many different diverse skill sets as possible um, to really help the campaign um, in this crucial point of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Now, I guess um, if you, Pete, would like to uh, like to outline Extinction Rebellion and, and what you guys have been up to um, beginning, I guess, in England and, and what happened there, is that where it actually did start? Yeah, it did. It was, um, I suppose, in a way, it's a project of a group called Rising Up, who was in England. Um, and it, sort of the, the main figures, Gail Bradbrook, uh, Roger Hallam, uh, they um, got together um, last, no, tw yeah, in 2018, decided to set up the Extinction Rebellion, and they looked at a whole bunch of uh, social science and political science and kind of went, okay, we've been fighting the uh, ecological crisis for the last 40 years. What's worked and what hasn't worked? And there's a lot that um, has worked on local levels, but a lot in changing the overall system hasn't worked. So they looked at what has been successful around the world, um, and... They based a bit of the research off um, Erica Chenoweth. Uh, she was an academic who uh, talked about that you need about 3.5% of the population uh, in sustained ci civil disobedience to actually change the conversation around stuff and get governments to actually uh, stand up and take notice. Um, I suppose, so something like um, XR, what they really did was it's not, um, it's something for people. So instead of going and protesting on a site, um, it's protesting in the city to, to create economic disruption. So, but it's not just, you know, heading to a park for an afternoon where you, um, you know, um, have some speeches and um, wave some signs and then go home after, you know, a um, couple of hours. Because, um, you know, as valid as that is to get your voices heard, for most people, it's just in the background. You know, it's um, it's just you know the um same as okay. There's those guys doing their process. There's a, there's a, those guys playing sport, whatever. So by um actually getting out in the streets and almost holding a city to ransom to create economic disruption gets people to take notice. So um, they had an, a day of rebellion um, in 
well, it started off as a day and then went to nearly two weeks, uh, starting in London, but then in other cities where they um, held five locations um, in London for days and days. Thousands of people were arrested. I think it was like a thousand and a couple hundred. Um, and, you know, it was huge media. And from that, they actually got um, some audiences with politicians and with people of power and said, you know, this is what we're sort of uh, talking about. This is what needs to change. So they've got... Uh, three main demands. Uh, one is to tell the truth. So that's tell the truth about what the climate crisis is and not just in a kind of, oh yeah, climate change is important, we need to all install solar panels. It's talking about the whole system and about how it will affect everyone. And that is both politicians, that's media, that's actually outlying the real possibilities of you know food shortages, war, conflict, that kind of thing. Uh, the second was to, which is quite dramatic, which is to get to net zero carbons uh, by 2025. Uh, that is is a pretty big ask, but it's partly about shifting what's called the Overton window. So you put out something that's so much on one side, and then even if you move sort of halfway or two-thirds of that, you've shifted it way more than if you just give a conserved little number. So um, going down to uh, net zero carbons by 2025 would be fantastic. It's going to be really hard, but you've got to ask the hard questions for this kind of thing. The third bit is uh, looking at um, setting up what are called citizens' assemblies to actually decide what what sort of uh, policies and actions can be done to make a difference to combat um, global heating and the climate crisis. So uh, while we do live in democratic uh, systems, um, you know, in places like the UK here in Australia, most of Europe, um, it has been, in many ways, um, hijacked by the very powerful and very um, rich uh, lobby groups from the fossil fuel industry. And you'll see a lot of politicians, it's a re revolving door, and they will you know, often come from places where they really are representing the interests of, of, of those companies and then go on to work for those companies afterwards, after they've um, had their time in, in politics. So even though they're elected by the people, the actual process, the people who have the power is those is those companies so setting up um a citizens assembly it's a bit like a jury uh, on, a, on, on a large scale and uh, people are called up they're presented with the science presented with the options and then they come up with the solutions and they they found that in uh where they have set these kind of things up often on like a local town thing it's really worked they also had it on a large scale in um, ireland um, i think it was over the abortion issue there and that actually proved quite uh, to work work really well because when you don't have those vested interests, you start thinking about well, what's good for my community, my family, my town, that kind of thing, and you'll find that it's very different to what um, is being pushed by you know large uh, multinational corporations. So it's about um, having a process where you can go well. Look, democracy isn't working in the way it is. We can set up something where everyone can get involved and actually make a difference. So it's it's about that wider system change. Um, did you want me to talk about what we've been doing in Canberra? Or? Um, well, I mean, um, there's a couple of things that you guys have in common with, with your, your, your fights, and we'll just run through a bit of that first, and then, yeah. then, we'll, then we'll come back to what we can do locally if we can't no worries. make it up to the, <laughs> up to the front lines. Um, so things like um, getting arrested. Um, yeah, what, what's, the, uh, what's the strategy behind that sort of thing? Well, I suppose it's it's the it's the kind of thing that if you if you suddenly have the idea of mass arrests, so a lot of people getting arrested, 
the government can't really ignore that. If you've constantly got people who are, you know, holding a space, being told to move on, and um, then they don't, and then uh, those people are arrested, that creates a media circus. It it um, it gets people in the community talking about that kind of stuff, and you it gets to a point where the government can't just go, well, look, we just can't keep arresting all these thousands of people. What's going on? We need to create a workable solution. And it's kind of at that point of, um, like, one of XR's things uh, is to be extremely peaceful. So it's always a peaceful protest. And so the so non-violent peaceful, the arrests aren't because people are being violent. It's because they're holding a space and they're not, they're not moving on. So it might be blocking, you know, traffic. They're blocking an area, that kind of thing. So it kind of creates a bit of a dilemma where um, if the police don't do anything uh, and then you've got the people holding the space, then they kind of win and people go, okay, we're talking about this stuff. Obviously, this is important. If you do suddenly have the police going in with mass arrests and they're arresting, you know, people who, you know, young people, older people, like there's lots of grandparents and things like that. Like these are all, you know, like people from all over the community. If you suddenly got these people being arrested, um, you know, that also looks bad on the government as well. So it's kind of there in this sort of, it's this really delicate sort of no-win situation. So either way, you can kind of get your message out there and try to force change. And it's and it's very much based on, you know, what we saw in the civil rights movement back in the 60s um, in America and the uh, suffragette to get the vote for women. You know, they did the, um, lots of this kind of stuff as well. So it's kind of looking at that sort of uh, history of what worked in getting that constant civil disobedience going on. Yeah, all right. Um, and and Ruby, you've been essentially up there at a, a reasonably small camp uh, in the middle of nowhere. What, what's the situation <laughs> there with getting arrested? It's it's a different context, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It is a different context. Um, it's. I mean, I guess it's kind of similar to to the Franklin campaign and the Bentley blockade, um, but. The situation, I guess the strategy is different in terms of getting arrested. Um, I think a lot of it is about spreading a message to get more and more people here because at the moment there is, you know, it's massive disobedience. There's only a couple, you know, there's about 35 people here at the moment. Um, so we aren't the masses. We're trying to mobilise the masses and get more people here to um, essentially enact that exact strategy of, um, having lots and lots of people occupy space. But um, at the moment, one of the things that being arrested does is it um, attracts media and it gets the message across about the red alert and um, what's happening with Adani, um, that there are people on the front lines who are willing to put their bodies on the line um, to stand in the way and stop work. And so basically what happens when one person locks on or when a couple of people do an action is that um, Adani can't continue, they can't clear, they can't work for that day. So it costs Adani a lot of money um, and they're already in debt. You know, Adani is losing so far in terms of um, the financial situation. So it's putting the pressure on in terms of um, money, it's putting the pressure on in terms of media and hopefully um, it's also mobilising the masses and getting more and more and more people um, to the front lines to start prioritising this issue as being, you know, potentially the biggest environmental campaign in Australia's history. So we need people to, to get up here. Ruby, it's Annie here. I'm Scotty's apprentice. <laughs> um, and we've just had a wonderful young woman called Mina come into the studio. Um, Mina's preparing to go up 
to join you um, in the, on the front line. So we thought oh, it would okay. be very interesting to have a little conversation with the two of you. Um, oh. So welcome, Mina. Hello. Hi, Ruby. How are you? Hey, Mina. Good. How are you? I'm great, thanks. That's good. So Mina might tell us a bit about what's been happening here in Canberra um, because she's been leading some work to help the camp. <laughs> thanks, Annie. Um so here in Canberra, uh, some of the local Stoppadati groups have organised a fundraiser, which we had earlier this week. Um, we also combined it with a bit of an info session for those who are keen on heading up to the blockade camp. Um, so I'm planning on travelling up next week, and I know that a lot of people in Canberra are really keen to support the front lines in any way that they can. Uh, we managed to raise over $1,000 on Tuesday night, which was fantastic, and we've um, heard from a lot of people that they're really keen on either heading up or supporting the blockade camp from Canberra. And I know that there is quite a lot that people can do from a distance as well to support the front lines, not just financially, but also volunteering time and helping with working groups and things like that, which maybe you can speak a little bit more about, Ruby. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for those people who can't make their way up to the front lines, um, one of the most important things that we're needing at, at the moment is um, to raise money to purchase a safe space for activists to um, to be um, yeah starting continuing the campaign from basically um, and so we're looking there's an association that's just um, been developed called Friends of the Galilee Basin and they've got a, a big crowdfunder at the moment um, and they're trying to raise money to support um, people on the front lines to protect the Galilee Basin. Um, in terms of volunteering time, there's, like I mentioned before, there are lots of different working groups at camp. So um, we do need people with skills, um, legal skills, um, skills uh, for media and um, journalism, that type of stuff is really important. So if you have any of those skills, um, there are working groups um, and we have different meetings going on um, via Zoom and that type of stuff. Um, each week, uh, there's also ways that you can, you know, support us by creating fundraisers, um, going out and speaking to people in the community, um, you know, any sort of creative, um, talent, uh, involving, you know, like any sort of creative take on raising awareness is really important. I think often we kind of, um, forget about the importance of um, creativity in this type of movement and I think it's really, really important um, to bring people together and to, yeah, to start raising that awareness, utilising um, creativity, music, art, that kind of stuff. That's, you know, they're all really valuable things. So as many different types of skills as possible. Um, if you if you have a hunch that you might be able to offer something, just get in contact with us. Like, yeah, send an email to flack, F-L-A-C, Cole, C-O-A-L, um, at ProtonMail. And, yeah, any ideas are always welcome. And I guess in a, in a camp like that, you can come up there without many or without any particular skills and just find something that's not being done and get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. I really um, – I went to the fundraiser that Mina organised uh, earlier in the week and um, I am very aware that I – may not be brave enough to tie myself to the railway track. But um, I was thinking, what could I offer? And I thought, well, if I went up there, I can cook. 
I can clean. I can give people back massages. Um, I can do media. I can paint banners. Um, so I think even, uh, you know, an elderly person such as myself could, you know, have something to give to the camp. Um, and I think that's something for people to really think about, that there's um, there's something for everyone is my take on it. Um, but, um, Mina, do you want to tell us a bit about the motivation for why you're going up there? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I've been involved as a volunteer with the Stopadani group here in Canberra for about two or more years now. I've sort of... Um, been along for the ride for a while on this campaign and I think it's just gotten to that really crucial dire point where we know that Adani's finances are on the brink but they continue to push ahead and each day that they clear the land of the black-throated finch and get closer and closer to digging ground and beginning to dig up coal in the Galilee is a really terrifying thought for me so I think that's enough to get me up to the front lines to do all that I can to help um, help the blockade camp and just help, I guess, mobilise as many Australians as we can to get up there to support the camp because we really do need mass civil disobedience um, and we need it on a scale that we're seeing in the cities across the country. So it would be wonderful to see hundreds of people up there as well. Mm, and I guess, um, oh, sorry, did you want to? No, go ahead. It's good. Yeah, <laughs> one of one of the things that um, that often stops us from from stepping up and, and taking a uh, a bit of a um, a bit of a stand is that we we are we are really afraid to step out of the normal and and just put our hand up and say no, I believe this. This is this is real. Yeah. Um, what, what's the role of, of fear and in 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 all of this stuff? I mean, I guess. There's also uh, the threat of arrest and going against society and getting locked up. What's the role of fear in, in disabling people, I guess? Anyone? Well, speaking, I'll speak for myself if that's okay. Um, I think I remember even the first protest I protest march I went on, which was, you know, 50 years ago, I felt terrified. Um, and those fears were around doing something that, wasn't a normal part of life that I that people might have thought I was a radical or something like that. Um, in that case, the cause was Vietnam, and you know we saw huge, huge protests across Australia because, like this current issue of climate, it was a threat to people. It was a threat to people's lives. Of course, this is a much bigger issue. Um, I think I think you know. It's, I reckon it's okay if people can't go to the front line if they do something where they are. Everyone can do something where they are. It really starts with just talking about this issue. People don't talk about the climate crisis. It's too bloody scary. So just talking to people is the very first start. This Sunday night, David Attenborough's um, program about climate crisis will be airing on ABC TV. And I think watch that and then start talking to people about it because that's going to open up the conversation across Australia in, in a huge way. Um, suddenly we have very respected people. Prince Charles was saying the other day, we've only got three years to seriously take action. People can feel really, um, you know, paralysed about around fear, and I think that's one of the things that it's really important to do any small thing is the beginning of, 
of being able to do more. And, and if you just imagine if everyone in Australia did one small thing about climate, we'd have this thing fixed. Even if everyone in Australia did something as small as, you know, going to a local protest, writing a letter to their politician, all those small actions. We've been using these for many years and they haven't worked. I mean, the letter writing. But if everyone wrote a letter, then we're in a different situation. Sorry, I'm banging on. Um, <laughs> Ruby, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. Um, I think our emotions, especially fear, fear is a very powerful emotion and it completely paralyzes us. Um, and I think when it comes to, um, you know, taking, it, it, there's a risk that's involved when you give up your life. Like I, I gave up my life in the Blue Mountains um, on Darug country working the best job I've ever had in regenerative agriculture, in a little, you know, community cooperative, teaching about sustainability. Um, and there was a lot of fear in making that decision. There was a lot of, um, what am I giving up? What am I losing? Um, and at the same time of that, you know, that I was going through that fear, the thing that I kept having in the back of my mind was, you know, what's even more scary than losing, you know, losing my job? What's even more scary um, than losing some of the luxuries that I enjoy right now is the complete devastation of the entire biosphere, you know? So it's kind of like fear plays a really important role in um, cutting, you know, completely cutting something out. And I think it's very good at going, um, at um, putting those blocks in our minds and going, I don't want to engage in that. It's too scary. It's too much. Um, and another, yeah, I think one of the other really powerful emotions um, that it completely blocks out is grief. Um, it's that kind of the, the hope and despair in, in the face of the climate crisis. And um, I think, you know, part of, part of stepping into this, part of acknowledging what's going on in the world right now, of course, there's a lot of fear that comes up for people. You know, there's a lot of grief that comes up for people. And it's, it's really important that we step into that, that we, we sit with that, that we allow ourselves to feel afraid because it's, the reality is it's terrifying, you know. It's an absolutely terrifying time. But the good thing is, is that it's also a hopeful time. And if we allow ourselves to feel these things, if we allow ourselves to feel grief, to feel fear, um, we can actually feel that sense of connectedness and we can start to rise. And in that fear and grief, there is hope. And I think that's, for me, one of the most empowering parts is, is coming to this camp has been the most hopeful decision I've ever made. And while I gave up all these things, um, that it, it was really scary to give those things up. It's been the absolute best decision because every time I'm faced with climate grief now, I, I know that I'm doing every single thing I can to to stand against it, you know, to stand against the climate catastrophe that um, is threatening us. Yeah. So now over the years, there's been countless people all over the world who, who have faced up to this fear and who have stood up and, and you, you look at people like Fela Kuti over in uh, over in Africa. And he spent decades standing up to a, a vicious dictatorship and got all sorts of horrors done to him. And people are getting shot in the third world as we speak uh, for standing up against people. Um, uh, in the in the rich countries, we've had the the peaceful movements as well. 
um, the civil rights one and the anti-Vietnam here, um, all of the forest blockades and everything. Now, how does it feel, Ruby, because you, you, you've been up there doing it, how does it feel to lose that fear, and, and especially with a bunch of people? Oh, it's the most empowering thing in the world. You know, it's absolutely um, completely freeing, I think. And it's also, um, I think it gives you a sense of integrity. It gives you a sense of um, living a values-led lifestyle, living by what you believe in, and that sense of, of justice and doing everything you can to step towards, you know, climate justice, social justice, um, and, and that sense of connection, complete connection to what's around us and, um, you know, the, the hope, the hope of change, the hope that we can change this broken system that we're a part of, you know, when, when you're around people that are like-minded and that are also in this space of, of giving up their lives to stand against something that threatens all of us, you know, to, to stand up for something that's bigger than us. You know, it's it's one of the most meaningful things in the world. That's amazingly inspiringly inspiring, really, to hear you say that. Um, and I'm wondering how Mina feels hearing that as she embarks on the long journey from Canberra up to central Queensland. Um, I I think what you just said, Ruby, was really beautifully put. And I don't think I could say it much better myself, but I, I really do agree and I have been thinking and sort of feeling my way through a lot of climate grief myself recently. And I do think it's very important to acknowledge and to talk about it openly because it's simply too big a emotion to face up to alone. And it's something that mm. we need to sort of come to grips with on our own to some extent, but then come together with other people so that we can actually feel that hope and solidarity together. And I think um, the way you've described camp sounds like a very inspiring and empowering place to be right now, particularly with the support and the training of everybody who's up there and, yeah, I guess just standing up for what you believe in and being able to stand up to face the climate crisis that we're in. Um, yeah, so I guess I feel... I do feel a little bit intimidated about going up because it is sort of leaving the safety and comfort of my life here in Canberra, which is very cosy. But I, I think I have sort of come to acknowledge and really sort of appreciate the privilege that we enjoy here in Canberra. And I think that in the scheme of things, it's really not much to give up given the crisis. Mm. Peter, what's your thoughts? You're doing a lot. You're spending a lot of your time and energy on this issue. Yeah, I sub I, and I'd really like to echo what um, both Ruby and Mina have said. Like it's, it is um, confronting that grief and moving through that grief. Uh, so I suppose something that really brought it to a head. I've always been issue. I've always been interested in um, environment, environmental issues and everything. But now in the place I work, which deals with those things directly, I've had to confront things a lot more. And I've also um, I'll be expecting a kid in a few months, and that's really kind of changed my perspective of going, okay, what kind of world are we going to leave for the next generation? Because now, you know, you, you can think about it, but now that it's it's kind of like a personal thing and um, just being able to have those conversations with people and and actually acknowledge the fear that we do fear, uh, feel about how things are. And, you know, we can see the signs of the um, ecological crisis. The last summer was just so hot and 
I think that um, I've just noticed the conversations with, with, with people I've been having, more and more people have been acknowledging the climate uh, crisis and it's easier to kind of sort of talk about that. Obviously, everyone's at their own level of their journey and, and you know, some people um, aren't quite at that point where they've sort of, you know, sat there and just confronted it all. But I think it, it, it is something that you have to go through. But then if you can acknowledge that and don't just push it aside with, you know, um, getting busy through life and social media and all the rest of it, you know, if, if, if you can actually sit with that for a while, you can actually move through that and then it does make you go, right, I've got to do something about this. Yeah. One of the motivators for me in getting involved and I'm hoping to be able to go up to the camp too in a few weeks um, is the fact that I have grandchildren. And when you've got these lovely little people in your life, um, I'm sure all the grandparents that are listening to this and all the parents, even if you're not a grandparent or a parent, you've got, you know, siblings or cousins or nieces or nephews, everyone's got some children in their life. And mm -hmm. you look at them and think, well, it's a totally natural human thing to want a better future for the children than what we had. And so to be looking at this, you know, climate crisis that's, you know, almost like a giant tidal wave bearing down on us and we don't want to be paralysed by fear, but fear can be a good motivator too, um, you know, fear for their future, for the future of others. Um, I echo Ruby's comment about um, the whole of the natural world too, which for many of us, well, it's it's our life support system, but it's also a big part of how we all um, find solace in the world and how we, you know, find peace is being out in the bush and, and being aware of the, the, the world around us. You're on Community Radio, 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Behind the Lines. You're with Scotty, you're with Annie, you're with Minna, you're with Pete and you're with Ruby. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, we are yarning about... Um, well, about uh, climate change and what, what what is being done about it by the community. Now, it seems certainly in Australia that the, the parliamentary, the whole parliamentary thing is, um, is it, it seems to be hell-bent on, on making this problem worse rather than, rather than better. And I don't know, I've heard Labor and Liberal combined called the Australian Business Party lately, which I think fits it quite well. Um, <laughs> Have anyone got any thoughts on the on the uh, on why the the parliament might be just so unrepresentative of, of what people are absolutely scared out of their wits about? Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. So Australia, um, if I think we're about you know ten fifteen years behind the rest of the world, you know, well if you look at somewhere like Europe, um, on on the climate issue, like environment. The something about environmental issues, it shouldn't it shouldn't be a left or a right issue. You know, it's something that affects everyone. But for some reason, we've framed it as an environment issue is something on the left. But even in the Labor Party, which is meant to be left, is uh, still um you know they're kind of kind of having it both ways. And it and it is just about votes, but it's also about the influence of business and lobbying. And the thing is, those um, lobby groups are just so powerful. They've got so much money, and you kind of the the problem is we do work in an economic system that's based on growth. And, you know, like you want to go get a business loan or something, you have to show how your business is going to grow. Um, an economy is measured on how fast it's growing, how much it's growing by. You know, on, on a finite world, that's not sustainable. Um, 
but we've kind of almost with when you look at things like Adani and even even when you look at pure economics, so take away all the environmental stuff, take away the stuff that really matters and you, and you just purely look at economics, it still doesn't stack up. It's not going to make money. You still got the government who's having to invest money into it. The company's not going to make money. So it's almost become an ideological issue for a lot of these people where they're just so hell-bent on going, no, we believe so much in this um, system of, of, of growth that we're going to put in everything just to do that. So I think that's the battle we're, we're kind of fighting against. Mm, I guess you've almost framed that as a religious issue. I think it's identity politics on both sides, you know? Mm, yeah. what, what, what do you mean by that? I think if you're... Some of the rhetoric that you hear about, it's just such a... Such an identity of going, yes, free market liberalism is the way that the world works. And it is it is an ideological kind of belief system. And it's it frames a whole view about what they view as valuable and about um, how you should run your life and how um, a country and society is supposed to work. You know, your people are seen as, as individual consumers. We're not seen as a society. And everything is rested on the individual, which creates this individualistic kind of thing where it's just take, take, take. And I think... Um, for if you've got that sort of mindset, it, it just colours the way that everything is done. So anything that comes against that is seen as extreme, is seen as radical. When you know you would think the most conservative thing of all would be trying to conserve the bush, trying to conserve you know our farmland and and clean water and stuff. You you think that's a pretty conservative thing, but it's 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 not for some reason. Mm-hmm. Anyone else got any thoughts on that one? I noticed this morning that um, the town of Stanhope has run out of water and they're having to truck water in. The locals are going to have to pay for this. It's going to be incredibly expensive. And it's, of course, one of the symptoms of of what's happening in Australia, in our farming areas. Um, this This ties into, I mean, you asked the question about parliamentary politics and I completely agree with Peter's comment about it being identity driven. Think about the National Party, you know, the party that is meant to represent the farmers and the bush. And they're clearly representing the fossil fuel industry in preference to people on the land. Um, and I think that must be very distressing for people on the land. To they, they often feel they have no choice but to vote national because that's what their parents did and that's the, they believe that's the party that represents them versus other parties which would represent people in the city. Um, And here they are facing, you know, this horrific crisis, which is only going to get worse and worse. And, you know, farmers are such optimistic people. You know, I've talked to many farmers and they say, oh, we we just need a good break and it'll be fine. And by that they mean the next good rain. Um, yeah. Yeah, the break in the weather. And, you know, and they and in Australia with its variable climate and thin, poor soils, they've always had to be very hardworking and hugely optimistic people to keep going. So, look, my heart goes out to them as it gets drier and drier. Um, you know, we've had we've we've seen internationally t- towns without water, like Chennai, um, running out of water because the monsoon was late. Everyone's digging more wells to get deeper into the what's in the groundwater and of course those groundwater stocks are running out uh, that brings us full circle to the great artesian basin of course mm-hmm. um, yeah. how can we be even considering 
mines that will tap into and potentially pollute that huge source of groundwater, which is a huge, it's our, um, it's a, it's like our wealth. That water is the commonwealth, you know. Um, mm. It supports so many people um, and so many towns. Yes, yes. It's, uh, <laughs> we could also uh, also do some hydraulic fracturing in it too. Be another <laughs> good idea, wouldn't it? So the, the parliamentary sort of action is, I don't know, in my mind, my opinion is that the parliamentary process has been completely captured by the uh, the big end of town, the, the economics and the corporates. Um, so how, I mean, blockades and, and, and things like um, what's going on at, at Frontline Action up in the Carmichael Basin are, are aimed at a specific sort of company um, who's doing it. And I think there's there's also something. Well, there's been a lot with the um, Adani campaign on on allies of Adani. Is there anything happening at the moment that way? Yes, I think uh, nationally we've been targeting contractors which are working with Adani, and the big focus has been on a major engineering firm in Australia called GHD. Here in Canberra, we've had a few actions the last few weeks outside of the Canberra GHD office. Um, I think a week ago we had our biggest, which was part of the National Week of Action, where pretty much every single GHD office in Australia was staked out by local community groups and stop Adani groups demanding on them to stop working with Adani and to get out of bed with them, you know, save their name from disrepute and um, stop saying that they're a green company when they're helping to build one of the world's largest coal mines. So I think that's had a huge impact already and GHD are really reconsidering and talking now within the company about whether they'll continue to work with Adani because this has really damaged their reputation. Um, and I think that in the past, the Stop Adani campaign has had some really big wins um, fighting corporations who are working with Adani. Uh, we managed to convince all of the Australian banks and major international banks to not touch Adani with any of their money. Adani's had to finance themselves entirely and the Australian company is in a lot of debt to the parent Indian company. So it's it's really dire how no other private institution will touch Adani, and I think that's quite telling of how sensitive business is to community pressure, even though, for some reason, governments are less responsive. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it, how our values are now no longer expressed through our representatives, but more directly by us talking straight to companies. Because mm, we saw um, Suncorp Insurance step back from insuring the mine too. So, you know, there are big steps being taken in the corporate world um, as these companies realise there's the reputational risk, which is a big one for GHD. There's also the financial risk. I understand that companies that have worked for Adani are, you know, they haven't been paid there's one company that's been, I think, owed about $18 million and they just haven't been paid. So, you know, this on all levels. <laughs> and for many years people have been saying, oh, this mine won't happen because the economics aren't there because it's been clearly uneconomic, which again goes to your point, Scotty, about governments have been pushing this, you know, even though they are led by parties that are supposed supposedly... Um, you know, supporting a business ethic of, you know, survival of the fittest, if you like, but they're prepared to use our taxpayer money to prop up companies that are 
not only doing huge damage, but are doing it without any economic basis. Survival of the fattest. Survival of the fattest, you've got it. Mm. Now, um, Extinction Rebellion has taken this to a a new level. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, instead of just targeting individual companies or their supporters on a a project sort of level, what was the... What was the whole idea of the uh, the London actions in particular? Um, yeah, I suppose um, economic disruption is the big thing. And when you've got, um, you know, thousands of people holding a space um, that affects, you know, so somewhere like London, it's one of the global financial capitals of, the, of the, the world. The thing is governments take notice when the economy is affected. And when you've got people who can't get to work and you've got all these businesses who are going like, the city's being held to ransom, well, you know, Governments uh, take notice of that. It's kind of, it's it's sort of a thing, instead of having the protests out of sight, out of mind, it's holding a space that cha- that means that governments are forced to do something. So I think I think that's the, the, the big power of economic disruption. Mm. Um, of course, we have um, people who find that distressing, those who are trying to get to work um, and are being held up. And also we have people like the Lord Mayor of Brisbane, who accused um, people in Brisbane recently of being extremists. What are your thoughts on those two issues, the the inconvenience and the thing of being labelled an extremist? Yeah, sure. I suppose um, the thing is it does, in, it, you know, it does inconvenience people and we apologise as much as we can for that, but it's sort of like we've got to this point where you kind of don't really have that many other options. You know, we've been doing protests for so many years. We've done letter writing, we've done petitions, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, those those things just haven't had the effect. So you kind of have to get to that point where you polarise people. Um, holding people up in traffic does two things. You, you you can have a chat to people, you can explain the, the stuff about the climate crisis and, you know, people do engage. People do engage. A lot of people also get pissed off. But if you've got people who are pissed off, and they're const- and they're talking about that. Well, then the government has to kind of do something on that too. So it's just at that point where it's like, well, what else are we supposed to do? You know, we've we've um, gone through the the political process. We, you know, um, there are pe- there are environmental lobby groups in Parliament too. You know, where I'm um, giving our side, it still hasn't had the impact that we need. So it's kind of this is like the last thing that you can kind of sort of do. But also in doing it in the city, you can get people who. Um, won't, who you know aren't able to go up to a you know a, a site like the Carmichael Mine, but you can get people who live in the city to actually engage in something here locally as well. So, um, as for the extremist kind of thing, I think that's I think that's an issue of framing. Like it's very easy to um, paint uh, someone who's standing up for something as an extremist. Um, you do have uh, lots of think tanks which are run by fossil fuel companies, they're funded by them, who will paint uh, people as extremes and they try to influence government and try to influence that conversation. And the thing is, Australia, we're pretty conservative here. Anytime someone steps outside the boundaries, oh, you're an extremist, you must be some radical. And it's like, I don't know, standing up for, for, for our food security and that kind of thing, it's not it's not really that radical. It's kind of what needs to be done. But it's, um, you know, I'm, it's also a way to sell newspapers, you know. You, I'm yeah. getting the media saying, you know, like it, it creates a, a um, battle. I want to put extremism in a bit of context too. I mean, here's these people who, for their ideology, are willing to ruin the earth for for growth of the economy, which is an imaginary thing. Here are these people who will lock up children in detention camps who've come to us for help. What sort of society locks up children indefinitely 
because they've come to you for help. That's extreme. They're putting yep. the mentally ill out on the streets because they couldn't be bothered paying for proper institutions. That's extreme. War. I mean, how many billions do we spend on war machines? It's These are the extremists, not us. I like the way that um, um, Brisbane councillor Jonathan Shree uh, responded to this because the Lord Mayor said that the that the people were extremists and he set up um, a social media page called Extremists of Brisbane <laughs> and invited anyone who'd been involved in the in the protests or were concerned about climate to send in a photo and a little paragraph about themselves and you can imagine it's just full of all these <laughs> beautiful you know young people with their babies grandparents um, and everyone's saying, you know, well, you know, I'm a social worker and da-da-da, or I'm an engineer or da-da-da. You know, it's it's a really lovely way to counter um, what you just said, Peter, about this the painting of people who are standing up as though they are all, you know, ex- extremist doll bludgers or whatever. The doll bludger thing has been used to bash people around the head in Australia forever. Um but anyway, I'll, I'll stop mm. raving about that. No worries. Now, we, we need to move on. Are we going to miss out on talking about what we can do about it? We're talking about the government needs to do something um, mm. or we need to do something. What What is it that we need to do to head off this stuff? What are the solutions? Are there any out there? Well, I'd suggest as a first, we must stop all um, subsidies to fossil fuels. We're subsidising the fossil fuel industry to something like $12 billion a year in Australia. That's our tax money is going to prop up these companies. Now, that's an action that government can do. That's a straightforward piece of legislation and tax policy. You know, that's a that's a, a simple first start, but you will all have other wonderful suggestions, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I mean, for me, when I think of the climate crisis and what we can do as a community, because in in reality, our government is, as we've been speaking about, it's failing us. Our legal systems are failing us and our media is completely failing us. So when those things that we depend to represent and protect us fail us, the only option becomes social resistance and defiance. It becomes mass civil disobedience, you know, peaceful, non-violent direct action becomes almost the only the only option. Yeah, yeah. Now I, I want to put in a plug here as solutions for beyond zero emissions. There are there are a, a group of people who've come together and just formed their own organization, must be ten years ago now. And they've they've put out a big series of, of really amazing reports written by engineers and all sorts of highly technical, competent people. And the, each sector of society is covered and it's covered in detail and it uses off-the-shelf technology. And it explains how in less than 10 years, we can really easily, very cost-effectively, transform our whole society to a zero-carbon one, beyond zero emissions. They're totally worth looking up. They're an amazing mob. And they've been uh, they've been copied by universities across the globe, um, doing all sorts of stuff like this around the world. It's totally achievable. It's cost effective. It'll save us money, and and we don't have to invent anything new to do it. Yeah, I think that's the thing. There's lots of there's lots of solutions that are already out there. You know, you you stop land clearing on the scale that it's being. You plant a hell of a lot more trees. You change the way that food is grown and and the way that it's distributed. You know, the the um, fact that you're buying food that's been transported halfway around the world is ridiculous. Like, uh, 
you know that that just um, creates all those carbon miles. You 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 change the expectations of how an economy works. Looking at well, how can we have businesses and corporations that work that don't have to be based on growth and building you know things for their shareholders? You you um, because you know the economy system it's something that we made up. It's something that has you know been developed. Um, you know, kind of I suppose started in the Renaissance and went from there, and it's sort of um. You know, we've uh, got uh, renewable technologies um, we, we can be using. Australia is one of the sunniest places. We should be having, you know, solar panels on every single house and, you know, out in the desert and all that kind of stuff. You know, and it's not like this stuff is rocket science. It's just about going, okay, what do we value? And then changing the economic things around that. One of the things that uh, Extinction Rebellion is looking at and, and kind of talks about is moving to almost a wartime economy. So in the Second World War, you had this rapid transition of a, per- of a period of months where you had, you know, places that were building cars were suddenly making tanks, places that, you know, had been uh, building, mach- you know, like various machines were suddenly making guns, you know, for the, the um, wartime effort. And that was a regulatory thing. I don't see why the same couldn't happen for climate stuff and going, right, we're going to do these massive infrastructure programs we're going to roll out these things that can actually create solutions and it's you know it has to come from government you you can't just expect the market to try to sort that out itself it'll just take too long Mm. i think um young greta thunberg uh expressed it perfectly when she said the technological solutions are all there all we need is the political will Mm. um i'd just love to give a shout out to the school strikers i think their Mm. demands sum up really nicely what we need the government to do we need I, like, I don't know quite off by heart because I know they've updated them really recently, but um, I think the general fora to like stop all new coal and gas mines, including Adani, we need to transition to 100% renewables as soon as we can across the country. We need to support coal miners and, um, I guess, fossil fuel workers uh, to move out of their jobs and into new opportunities and new careers, hopefully, you know, within rehabilitation of the earth or um, the renewables industry um, and can anybody jump in on the last one? No. Oh, I'm not, yeah, no. <laughs> There's definitely a fourth one and I think you know like they've probably added a bit of detail to each of those mm. that I think that's like a really great blueprint for how we can transition. Mm, and it's particularly important to um to look after the people who are in fear of losing their jobs because they're, they're experiencing fear just the same as we are on a, on a very personal scale. Um, and, and we can do that. I mean, there, there are so many things that are out there. There's a mob called Project Drawdown. Have, have you guys heard of Project Drawdown? This is a guy who's done a massive list of about 100 of the most effective things that we can do as a global society and as local people to, to mitigate and, and turn around climate change to draw the carbon down out of the atmosphere and to, um, yeah, to reverse what we've been doing. And, and if you put together all of the ones related to agriculture, for instance, and, and land use, that is the number one thing that we can do. And there's so many jobs in that. As soon as we start farming without the, the massive input of, of fossil fuels, the work that's being done by those really dense energy fuels then has to be done by us using our food which is not very dense so it takes lots of us to do that and there's your employment straight there and it's mm. and it's bloody good employment too i was a farmer for many years and it's a very satisfying thing to do um yeah and what about the system the whole thing is 
because the system is wonk and it's growth economics and this neoliberal rubbish all over the earth, what? How do we? How do we get something new going here? I think there are lots of new things happening already, aren't there, Scotty? There are there are heaps of people developing new ways of being. Um, one of the things that I find um, really keeps me together when I feel overwhelmed by the whole climate crisis is that I'm aware that at this moment, right now, all over the world, there are thousands and thousands of people that are working on solving this problem. They're the scientists, they're the engineers, they're the, they're the you know, the people doing small actions within their own businesses. There are the grannies sitting out on the street knitting and, and giving people cupcakes and trying to give people information and cheer them up. There's the amazing brave protesters on the front line holding this up in order and drawing attention to it in order for other systems to kick in and, and end this silly situation. Um, there are people like the wonderful Market Forces Group who who do the analysis and put the pressure um, on banks and on insurance companies and others. So they're right at the heart of the beast, if you like, within the financial world. Um, I think it's important to not lose sight of that, that everywhere there are people doing this stuff to help us get through this. They're the farmers developing new systems, but and often they're people who would never come out on the street. They're, you know, they're just doing whatever they're doing. They've got an idea and they're pursuing it. They're developing a new kind of technology that will help solve a problem or they're just, they've formed a local neighbourhood group to get people to talk about it and reduce waste or reduce energy use in their area. Um, anyone else have any thoughts? <laughs> I, um, I, I think it's the thing about um, expectations as well. So as technology increases and we can automate more things and do more things, our expectations of what can be done goes up. So it's this idea that you kind of just have to keep increasing your productivity and it's like, well, if we had the same expectations of how long it takes a job to get done as it would have 30 years ago or something, we'd probably be able to, you know, um, have more people employed doing less work and more, you know, free time. I mean, it's this kind of thing of like, we, we just don't need to just keep increasing how we do everything. So I, th I think it's about being able to take a step back and, and, and look at how things are structured. For instance, there's lots of um, uh, cooperative companies which are being created where they, you know, it might be a certain factory or a certain business or something. And the person who's right at the top, um, you know, isn't going to earn more than, you know, um, eight to 10 times the lowest paid worker, things like that. Like they're still, that's still really good money. But, you know, you don't need these people who are, you know, CEOs and that who are earning, you know, 200, 300 times what the clean is being paid. Like it, the whole, I guess it's just that extreme where it's just out of whack. It's like, I mean, it's not like you need to suddenly, you know, all be just living in a village in a cave somewhere or something like, but you can just make it a, a bit more um, in, in line with what is good for people, what is good for the earth. Like, um, I think so it's about adjusting our worldview of, of um, how we do things, really. Mm. Yeah, look, I'm going to put a plug in here for, for something that is upcoming. There's just been a massive MOOC, a massive open online course, which attracted thousands of people from around the world on, on, on the cooperative Commonwealth idea. Um, and this has been exemplified really through the Mondragon system of co-ops in, in northern Spain, who grew up uh, in opposition to the uh, Franco dictatorship. So they were very much on the back foot, but... Um, they emerged from very, very much nothing. People with no money in a, a, a small town that was essentially under siege. And by working together to do things that they couldn't do by themselves, they've now built 
one of the biggest corporations in Spain, which is all worker-owned and worker-controlled. They do everything from aerospace and factory building to farming. They own the shopping malls. They sell the stuff from the farming. They have their own health system. They have their own school system from before kindergarten right through to the, the best universities. And they consistently have 10% less unemployment or they have yeah, 10% better unemployment figures than anywhere else in Spain. Now, we can replicate this all over the world um, by just doing it, by building cooperatives, by saying how they work. And, and if we design them right, like GHD is a worker-owned company, which could be mistaken for a co-op now. <laughs> it can go seriously wrong. Um, so we need to design these things right from the start. And, and then people like uh, Cooperatives Commons and Communities Canberra are working on this on the ground. The New Economy Network of Australia is, is doing it nationally and locally. Um, yeah, all I can say really is don't feed the billionaires and that's another way around it. Well, GHT is a good example. As you said, it is a, a worker-owned company and because of that, um, there, is a lot of, um, there is a lot of concern within the company at the moment. And so it's not a si simple case where the CEO is going to be bloody-minded and push it through. We really hope that the fact that GHD has got that broader ownership base um, and the people that own it are scientists and engineers and project managers and others that, look, if anyone in the world understands the seriousness of this situation, it's those people. Um, when we had our little protest outside their thing the other day, I asked how many scientists and engineers are in this crowd and like a third of the crowd put their hand up, you know, like they understand that, and they, you know, um, I feel very hopeful about what will happen with GHD, that they will decide to step out and keep building a healthy, safe future for Australians not buy into the, the dirty coal mine. Yeah, all right. Well, I think we've run out of time pretty much. Is there anything really... Well, how do we get in touch with all of you people? Let's let's just go one by one. <laughs> how do we get in touch with Extinction Rebellion? Um, I suppose if you're on uh, Facebook, we've uh, got our Facebook page. So, um, you know, search for Extinction Rebellion ACT. Um, you can also um, do a Google search for um, Extinction Rebellion Australia. Um, they've got a website which will have all the links. Um, and you can also email Extinction Rebellion, so xr-act um, at protonmail.com. And Ruby? So for Frontline Action on Call, um, you can go to our website, which is frontlineaction.org. And if you'd like to catch up with Frontline Action on Coal, you can email them on F-L-A-C-C-O-A-L, that's flaccoal, at protonmail.com. And you can catch up with Stop Adani Canberra at their Facebook page, Stop Adani Canberra. See you later. This interview was done in the studios of Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it, please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click Support 2XX, and then Donate, Subscribe, Volunteer, or Sponsor Us. Thanks.